Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the Tudors and we'll be finding out why the most notorious of all English dynasties continues to exert such a hold on the popular imagination. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we found out how St. Patrick became a global icon looked at why civilizations collapse and communities disappear and heard about Lady Gregory's autograph tree. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. The Tudors ruled for 118 years during one of the most formative periods in British history and the dynasty includes two of the best known of all the British monarchs, Henry VIII and Elizabeth I. During this period, England became a European colonial power and Ireland was put firmly under its control. This was also a time when secular power was centralised and the country broke from Rome. So in tonight's show we want to debate England's most notorious dynasty, how it changed the history of these islands and its impact on religion, society, fashion, culture and lots more besides. And to help me do this I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Richard Rex is Professor of Reformation History at the University of Cambridge. His new book, A Short History of the Tudors, will be published by Bloomsbury Academic later this year. And he's also the author of a groundbreaking account of the emergence of the theology of Martin Luther and many more works uh, besides. And he's joining me tonight in studio. Joining me on the line, Siobhan Clark is a guide lecturer at Historic Royal Palaces, an expert on the palaces of Hampton Court, Kensington, Tower of London and the Banqueting House, Whitehall. Her books include Gloriana, Elizabeth I and the Art of Queenship, King and Collector, Henry VIII and the Art of Kingship and books on a Tudor Christmas and the Tudor's Crown, Dynasty and Golden Age. Dr Natalie Mears is Reader in Tudor and Early Stuart History at Durham University and is an expert on Tudor and Early Stuart politics and religion as well as the posthumous representation of Elizabeth I and she's the author of Queenship and Political Discourse in the Elizabethan Realms. Professor Christopher McGinn is Professor of History at Fordham University in New York and is Associate Chair for Undergraduate Studies at the Lincoln Centre there. An expert on the Tudor period, he's the author of The Tudor Discovery of Ireland. Well, you're all very welcome. And later in the show, I'll also be talking to O'Leary Lynn, the Head of Exhibitions at National Museum Wales and the author of the award-winning book, Tudor Fashion. Well, as I say, you are all very welcome. And Richard, because you're joining me tonight in studio, I might put the first question to you. And that description of the Tudors as the notorious dynasty, I took that from the description of your forthcoming <laughs> history of the Tudors. And uh, what makes them such a, a notorious dynasty? Yeah, well, thank you, Patrick. I think it's uh, three things. Well, it always is for a lecturer, of course. But one of them is, as I like to think as a professional historian, the momentous significance, which you've already outlined, of, the, of that century, the break with Rome, the Protestant Reformation in England, which is a a cultural change of enormous significance, not just for England, but for Britain, for Ireland, for the world. So first of all, there's that. 
Then, of course, much more grisly, there's the bloodshed. Dozens of traitors executed under Henry VII, three figures under Henry VIII, the Marian martyrs, the various rebels and traitors and martyrs, and, of course, Irishmen executed or slaughtered under Elizabeth. So there's there's an immense sort of potency just about that image. And finally, and something Siobhan's much better equipped than I, it's the first really visual English dynasty. Those pictures, the the artefacts, the wealth, the buildings, but, you know, Holbein, Hilliard, we can see the Tudors in a way that we can't see any previous royal dynasty. And Natalie, the imagery is so important and they seem to be being very good at selling themselves, at branding themselves, that a whole mythology even springs up in their lifetime. Yes, that's right. Um, as Richard said, it's, it's the first really kind of visual um, dynasty um, for uh, England. And we associate that kind of selling particularly with Henry VIII and Elizabeth I. But interestingly, some of the work I've been doing recently would like to kind of sing the praises of the, the lesser known Tudors like Henry VII and Mary, because they were pretty good at doing that kind mm-hmm. of selling as well. Um, we have very little evidence about Henry VII, but there's this wonderful Herald's memoir, which is an account of the early years of his reign. And we see him going on progress. Um, with you know huge retinues of very richly clad nobles going into the Ricardian heartlands, the, the support area of, of the, the now dead Richard III, and he performs um, blessing of cramp rings, washing of poor men's feet, and all these kind of public ceremonies, which really demonstrate that he's the the true and legitimate queen. Sorry, king. Um, <laughs> um, I'm thinking queens because I'm, I'm also thinking of Mary um, Tudor. Um, she, she has a very bad reputation um, in, in modern day. Um, but she was actually um, very astute. And, and a number of the ways in which she represented herself as queen is exactly what Elizabeth did. But Elizabeth gets all the praise for it. So Mary really... Um, she, she has this rousing speech in front of rebels when all her kind of courtiers are running around like headless chickens, saying, basically, I'm the daughter of Henry VIII. Um, I am your, your queen. Um, I'm legitimate. Um, you will obey me. Um, she's, very, she's actually very good at sort of propaganda. So she has um, the scaffold speech of the executed Duke of Northumberland printed and circulated around Europe. Um, and she actually sets up the first annual Thanksgiving, um, and that's for the reconciliation with the Church of Rome. Um, and that, that starts in about 1556, and it's something that very few people know about. And Natalie, it's interesting that we, when we think of the Tudors, we automatically think of Henry VIII, we think of Elizabeth I, but, you know, as you've mentioned there, there are other monarchs as well, and that uh, perhaps their their part of the story doesn't really get as much attention. Yes, that's true. I think particularly Mary, um, who's becoming a bit of a hobby horse of mine, um, she she does have a a particularly um, bad reputation as you know, Bloody Mary executing um, uh, through burning 280-odd martyrs. And if we think of her presentation in the first of the Kate Blanchett um, films, she's played by Kathy Burke. She's old, fat, a bit common, sitting in the dark. Whereas actually, um, in her younger days, she was very fashionable. 
she allegedly taught um, Elizabeth to play cards and to gamble. Um, and, you know, she was very well educated and I think a lot more astute than people would would take her for. A lot of historians think of her as sort of hysterical and, and weak and feeble, but um, she wasn't. Richard, if you wanted to get back in? Yeah, well, I just wanted to endorse absolutely what Natalie is saying. I mean, you don't lead the only successful rebellion in Tudor England without being politically astute <laughs> and seize the throne, as it were, against the might of the London establishment. And she's certainly a, a smart and capable politician. Siobhan, the Tudors seem to have realised and recognised the importance of symbols and they seem to have been very effective in, in using these symbols. Mm-hmm. Well, the most obvious one, of course, is the, uh, the Tudor rose itself. Uh, that emblem that um, is still so recognisable today, probably the most successful uh, logo mm-hmm. ever created, the, the red and white rose, Lancaster and York, coming after the uh, end of the war, Wars of the Roses, this new uh, regime, this dynasty, uh, will unite uh, England and bring peace. And then, uh, and Henry the Seventh, I think, is the first king in, in a very long time who can successfully and um, peacefully uh, pass on his crown uh, to his son. And it makes Henry the Eighth um, fairly secure um, on the throne, um, undisputed, being the the heir to Lancaster. And, uh, and York. And that's one of the reasons, actually, that he doesn't have to live in castles anymore. He, he's not interested in living somewhere like the Tower of London. And he builds pleasure palaces, of, of which the most famous and still um, existing is Hampton Court Palace. And you can almost tell the history of the of the dynasty and of the different monarchs through some of the the portraits that were that were that were painted during this time. Yes, yes, and Henry um, really developed portraiture. He imported foreign artists into England. He really brings the Renaissance into England. That's not to say that Henry VII didn't use um, artists. He did, artists, stonemasons, poets and historians, um, because, of course, he had to project himself as the legitimate king of England, and so he's very interested in royal image-making, and despite being a notorious miser, he's willing to spend a lot of money on that sort of thing, even spending a lot of money on clothes. Uh, but he is very much surpassed by his son. Henry VIII spends a fortune on clothing and magnificence and palaces and, and image-making. It's, it's really important, especially when you're trying to compete with European monarchs who, who are actually uh, more powerful than, than Henry VIII. But he manages to um, make a big um, statement on the European stage, um, and, and partly by throwing a lot of money at his image making. And Christopher, I know there was a, a really significant exhibition in New York at the Metropolitan Museum of Art recently, and that uh, at Fordham you put together a, a conference to market called Reframing the Tudors that looked at a lot of these questions about uh, how England became a thriving home for the arts and how they were able to, to use artistic patronage to, to promote the monarchy. Yeah, it was really fascinating. I mean, the notion of seeing Queen Elizabeth's face on Fifth Avenue in New York, you know, stopping traffic, as it were, um, was really something. And um, they put on this show called The Tudors Art and Majesty in Renaissance England. And as your panelists have said, um, it really showed the enduring staying power of the Tudors. Just seeing all these tourists at the Metropolitan Museum standing there and just, in you know, their jaws agape 
looking at this family? Because I think, you know, what all of your panelists have said so far, I mean, I would agree with, with all of, the, of, of what they've said. But at the heart of it, it is a family drama. And it's a narrative that I think you can easily wrap the period around. These are people. These are um, sons and daughters um, and fathers and sons. And I think that um, in this very significant period of history, as Professor Rex has said, um, it makes for a really compelling, um, a compelling story. And Christopher, do you think it's, you know, talking uh, as a family drama, it's precisely mm. because so uh, we have so many, I suppose, uh, cinematic twists and turns that makes it so suitable for cinema and for television. You have all of the divorces with Henry. You have Absolutely, Elizabeth yeah. Elizabeth as a woman, you know, battling against all of these odds and prejudices and the longevity of the reign that, and, and at the backdrop of the Reformation and all of this, that it is a dramatic family story. It is. Of course, as anyone on the panel can tell you, um, this period is bewilderingly complex. Um, It takes a um, a professional discipline to be able to immerse oneself in the materials to understand it. But at base, there is this narrative. And for me, it was always about trying to um, make um, that the central story, the story of the Tudor dynasty, and then to wrap around these much more complicated topics around it. Yeah, Richard, about that issue of the complexity of it, is there a danger that when we approach a subject like the Tudors, we're so influenced and shaped by television and cinema and the novels of Hilary Mantel and all of these uh, different forms of, of, of works that, that perhaps it is it maybe uh, simplifies the story for us or that it it makes us view it in a way that perhaps isn't maybe always correct. Well, I mean, you could take that in all sorts of directions. I mean, you know, it's absolutely the case that this is a personal monarchy and therefore matters of family are matters of state. But if we misread that, we get into... You, you used a key word earlier, so centralization. We can sort of get the impression that all Henry VIII needs to do is snap his fingers and something will happen in York or Llandidno. And and that's not how it is at all. It's not, you know, it's not like a modern government. So if you want to govern England and indeed any country in this century, it's actually a complex game with unwritten rules about collaborating with people on the ground, the people who have power in localities. And that, you know, whether it's England or Ireland, that's how you govern. In England, you collaborate. It works. In Ireland, you don't quite trust the local power brokers. So you don't work with them. Surprise, it doesn't work. So it's uh, we can get distracted, I think, a little too much by the centre and forget that actually this is a very complex, uh, multifarious kaleidoscope, really, of domains over which the Tudors have to rule. And how do they centralise? Why is that so successful? Is it that they destroy the power of the barons? You have the monasteries dissolve. That there definitely seems to be a hmm. a very effective way of of reducing the power of those outside of the centre. And there's certainly a reduction of rival powers, as it were. What the Tudors, starting with Henry the Seventh, really undermine is the the kind of fully autonomous provincial magnate or the church, as it were, as a fully autonomous rival corporation. So they bring these institutions to heel. And it's it's not so much centralization as such as central accountability. You know, when Henry V wants to deal with a troublesome magnate, he has to go and get him. When Henry VIII wants to deal with a troublesome magnate, he calls him to London and he comes. Even the Earl of Kildare comes, you know, so that's the difference. They managed to 
they get some way towards centralization, but they don't have railways and they don't have telegraphs. So, you know, they're not the modern world. Christopher, we've mentioned Ireland there, so let's talk about the Tudor discovery of Ireland, the title of your book. Uh, How did, I suppose, uh, the position of Ireland within all of this change under the Tudors? I mean, one way of looking at it um, in in absolute terms, if you look at it from the beginning of Henry VII's reign and compare it to the end of Elizabeth I's reign, Ireland too has become a larger part of the Tudor state um, if you can call it that, it has been centralized to an extent, to a much greater extent than it was at the end of the 15th century. Um, but what's in the title of that book, The Tudor Discovery of Ireland, um, really comes back to what Professor Rex was saying about personal monarchy. Personal monarchy in the 16th century does matter. And and what I discovered was that the Tudors really knew very little about Ireland. And they thought that they could govern Ireland in this personal way like they could England. Um, And to an extent they could. Professor Rex points out that the Earl of Kildare comes to London. He doesn't leave again, but he does come (laughs) to London. Um, But in the 16th century, we tend to think in Irish terms that the Tudors conquered Ireland. And I've been spending a lot of time in recent years working on a book on conquest because the Tudor conquest of Ireland is is a great framework and it's very easy to teach. There's kind of a good guy and a bad guy here. There's black and white a conqueror and um, and a conquered, a colonizer and a colonized. But what I've discovered that it's more complicated than that, and we really need to begin by looking at the Tudor period when it comes to Ireland with how ignorant the Tudors were about this territory over which they claimed to rule. They really knew very little about it, and of course, they never went there. Um, Siobhan mentioned before how um, Henry VII would go on progress, Henry VIII would go on progress, Um, But none of the Tudors set foot in Ireland, and that's really significant in a period of personal monarchy. And, um, you know, Ireland as well kind of gives the lie to a lot of this splendor that we associate with the Tudors. I mentioned before Queen Elizabeth's face on Fifth Avenue and people gawking at it. But the first thing that I thought of was Shane O'Neill in 1562 Mm -hmm. at her feet howling a confession. This was an immensely powerful individual, and there he was, not quite at the snap of our fingers, but this is a man who was pursuing an English earldom on English terms and goes so far as to go to Whitehall to submit before the Queen. So um, Ireland certainly is – is, is, um, its relationship to the Tudors in this period is, is really very complicated. And Christopher, why do you think there is that failure when it comes to Ireland? Because, you know, for example, under Elizabeth, you have William Cecil, who is mm. a top advisor and definitely is, is, a, is an intelligent, you know, n- nuanced man who's able to to understand different types of relationships. Then how come they're able to get it right when they're they're changing and transforming England, but then uh, it seems to go so wrong when they're applying the same things to Ireland? Well, I think there were... Two main problems, I mean, I, I could go on, but there are two main problems. One, at a personal level, the Tudors believe that Ireland had been conquered by their progenitor in the 12th century, Henry II. So in their mind, um, they were not conquering Ireland, they were reforming it. It was a reformation, like the Protestant Reformation, trying to bring religion back to its pristine early state. This is what the Tudors believed they were doing in Ireland. So from the start, there is that absolute disconnect between the Tudors and the folks who actually live in Ireland, um, this, uh, this obsession with the 12th century after so many centuries had elapsed between that period and their own. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that the Tudors had a real, and Tudor society, I suppose early modern society broadly, had a real difficulty in accepting difference. Mm-hmm. 
differences of other people. And the native Irish population, the Tudors looked at them as savages. This was not a people, and you know, the Tudors looked at the, at the Portuguese askance as well, but they didn't seek to civilize the Portuguese. So there was really no room in the Tudor territories for Irish people to be Irish subjects of the Tudors. They had to be, and under Henry VIII explicitly, they had to be made into Englishmen. And that is a huge project for any early modern state. And the Tudors failed at it. And Richard, that's a real contrast to what's happening in England because there the, the crown is able to collaborate with, with different elites. It's mm. able to accommodate them. It's able to work with them. I mean, in a sense, a better contrast or comparison is Wales because... You know, there's still a question as to why the English turn that way against the Irish. Whereas in Wales, what you see is a a coming together and an acknowledgement in due course that you can be Welsh and still be English, as it were. You know, you can be a loyal subject. You can have the Bible in Welsh. You can, you know, worship in Welsh, pray in Welsh. So there's a difference in approach there. But the English had had actually much more, as Connor would say, I think much more experience of the Welsh and much more interchange with them. And of course, you could actually integrate Wales into England, and that in turn gave you access to all that patronage, that wealth of land and office, which only increases hugely under Henry VIII, with which you can lubricate the relationships with the local power brokers. And that there's just not so much of that lubrication available in Ireland, particularly not once you get outside the pale to the, the Gaelic or Gallic areas. Okay, well, tonight we are talking history and we are talking about the history of the Tudors. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll talk about the Reformation and the transformation of religion and society in Tudor England. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back to Talking History. Tonight we are debating the history of the Tudors and I'm delighted to be joined by my panel of brilliant experts, Professor Richard Rex of the University of Cambridge, Siobhan Clark of Historic Royal Palaces, Dr Natalie Mears of Durham University and Professor Christopher McGinn of Fordham University in New York. And Richard, it's impossible to talk about the Tudors without talking about the Reformation and the dramatic break with Rome and and the dramatic break that created then in in English society and religion and politics and everything. And it is, I suppose, how do we tell the story of Tudors in terms of this dramatic religious break? Well, it's it's such a big thing in Tudor society, as in all early modern society, religion is such a big thing that we, you know, the hard thing for us is to understand perhaps in the modern world just how significant it was to them. I mean, that What I always tell my students is religion is the economics of the 16th century world. It's that in terms of which they understand everything else, politics, morality, art, education, you name it. It's conceived in religious terms. So yes, when you change religion, And as early as 1538, one of Henry's own loyalist supporters, Richard Morrison, is talking about his monarch's change of religion in the 1530s. So they know this is a big thing. When you change that, you shake the foundations of society. It is no surprise that Henry VIII faces his biggest English rebellion. The Tudors face their biggest English rebellion two years after the break with Rome, because suddenly anything goes. You know, there's huge disruption. One can quote Star Wars, you know, there's great disturbance in the force, as it were, when you break with Rome. You can't put your finger on it, but things have changed. 
And it just leads to so much turmoil and upheaval and questions about then who's going to be the the monarch and what kind of marriages you can contract because, you know, you can't really marry a Catholic if you want to maintain. So it it, it has an impact on everything. It does. You know, know, you're worried about a papally sponsored invasion. You're worried about rogue magnates or rogue members of the royal family launching a counter-strike against you. You know, what does Edward VI do about Mary? What does Mary do about Elizabeth? Because they know in their heart of hearts that this religious thing's going to change again unless I can do something about it. But then you have these other religious dimensions of the world, what I call to my students the religion of monarchy. You know, over and above all this, there's a sense that the monarch is appointed by God. All the Protestants and Catholics agree about that. And therefore, what do you do if the king goes one way in religion and you want to go the other. Do you obey the king? Do you obey God? This is an enormous personal anguish for people. You know, there's a chap whom Henry VIII executes, one of the many, and he says in his interrogations, there was nothing I did in my whole life that pained my conscience more than when I swore my oath to the supremacy. You know, these, um, you know, this goes right down to every level of society. It's not the case that it's something that just goes on in government. Henry VIII wants every last man in England, I won't say man, woman and child, it's just every last man, of course, to swear an oath to him, to accept it. Elizabeth wants every last man, woman and child to turn up in the parish church on Sunday. It's not a matter of choice. And of course, people were, you know, you could say much more devout than societies now that we might look back on it and say, oh, there probably, there might have been self-interest or political manoeuvrings with some of these things. But actually, we have to understand that people felt these things very strongly in their hearts. Well, some more than others, of course. You know, there are lots of not very religious people in Tudor England. Let's be very clear about that. But there aren't many atheists. That's a wholly different thing. So it's something that's so much around you. You know, you can't really opt out of it. But your relationship with religion can be as different, again, as many people's relationship now with the economy. You know, you can be a sort of billionaire entrepreneur or you can be someone who's down and out. You know, there are all sorts of places in the world for people. Natalie, it's interesting when when Richard there was talking about uh, men and the the focus on that for for someone like Henry. How do we understand the Tudor period in terms of gender? Because I think it it's very much a masculine monarchy under Henry VIII. But perhaps we have to to look at gender in a different way than just saying, oh, and some of these monarchs were women. That it's much more complicated than that. It very much is. Um, I mean, historians have been thinking about gender since the 1980s, particularly focused first of all on the reign of Elizabeth I and then on Mary. This period was significant for, in England, having the first two reigning queens who were crowned. And it's a patriarchal society. And so when you suddenly have a woman in charge, women don't really have legal rights. They're thought of as sort of mentally and physically inferior to men. How can these women be governing a realm, you know, half of which comprises of men? That said, I think we also do need to think about masculinity. As I've said, historians have been interested in gender for a long time, but they have actually defined it really just as women um, and assumed that kingship is is almost gender neutral um, and that there's nothing perhaps particularly masculine um, uh, about kingship. And that would seem strange when we look at portraits, for instance, of Henry VIII, you know, this huge hulking, you know, big shoulders, 
you know, the, the kind of power stance, the, vis, the, the visible cod piece, etc. But actually, even Henry's reign um, posed some sort of issues, some gender issues, if you like. He comes to the throne at the age of about 18. And ideas of masculinity at this time are very much predicated on the, the mature man. Um, yes, you want to be kind of, you know, virile and uh, physically active. Um, you want to be skilled as a king. You want to be skilled in warfare and jousting and stuff, which, of course, Henry is. But masculinity is also based on being head of a household, married with children, having kind of public office, which... Henry doesn't kind of quite have at the beginning. Um, and so it's this kind of awkward sort of pitching of, yes, you have this wonderful, virile, active king, but he doesn't have the kind of masculine maturity um, that, that the ideal male king um, will have. And so you have to kind of temper this because you know, he's, somebody, he's a young man who has, enormous power he is the king of england wales and ireland um and he has allegedly enormous wealth um at his fingertips we think of henry the seventh might have stashed away about a million pounds or the equivalent of a million pounds um henry henry the eighth is able to conduct these french wars early on without significant um uh, recourse to taxation who's got to have got the money from somewhere. Um, so, yes, yeah, so masculinity and femininity or, or issues about female gender are really, really important in this period. And Natalie, I'm interested in how Elizabeth was perceived in her own lifetime, because I think that because she she reigned for so long and then there was so much you know, adoration of her afterwards and uh, she became such an iconic figure in, in English and British history that maybe we forget about how she was so controversial during her lifetime. She was certainly hated by, you know, Gaelic chieftains in Ireland, but there was also, you know, people in England who wanted her killed and removed from the throne that, you know, there were, there were the controversies and the, the divisions as well. Yes, this sort of mythology of the kind of great Gloriana, everybody loves her, um, her, her skill in um, sort of PR and connecting with her subjects. Yes, there is an element of truth to that, but there is also opposition to her. So we have stories, you mentioned Ireland, we have stories of um, one of the Gaelic chieftains, Brian O'Rourke, having uh, some sort of wooden effigy of her, which he attacks, with, and he's in his gallow glass attack and, um, with axes, and then he ties it to his horse's tail and drags it around. Um, we have her being called an old hag or a whore um, in Ireland. And this is, there's a variety of reasons for this. Um, some of it is actually just drunken talk. Um, and it's a society which can be very worried about sort of dissent. And so people can, can often report it up, up the sort of political scale because they don't want to get into trouble um, for somehow condoning or not doing anything about it. Obviously, Elizabeth is a problem, if you like, for some Catholics, though not all. I mean, most English Catholics make a distinction between their, if you like, religious duty to the Pope and their political duty to the Queen. And they say they can be both loyal citizens and um, good Catholics. 
And Siobhan, it's interesting to hear Natalie there talk about Elizabeth's skill with PR and I suppose the the interest in her private life and what was going on there or not going on there. I wonder this idea of the Virgin Queen, how, how and when did that take root and was that something that people projected onto her or, or is it something that she herself projected? No, it, it seems to have come from Elizabeth herself. And she was talking about it really early, actually, um, as early as 1559, um, when she makes that very famous speech to Parliament um, saying that, um, you know, she would be happy to uh, to live and die uh, a virgin at a time when she's so young. I mean, she came to the throne at 25. Everyone assumes that she will marry and have children. Uh, but it seems to have been something in her head right from the right from the beginning. And, and it's something that, you know, we, there's so many different theories as to what was going on in Elizabeth's mind um, as to why she um, she didn't marry, uh, reasons that could be personal, the political considerations. There's, there's all kinds of, um, of theories, um, but the most compelling is probably that uh, marriage would bring some erosion um, of her power. I think most most um, historians think that she she actually was uh, a virgin, in spite of her love and dalliance with Robert Dudley, and and it was a big part of um, Gloriana, of of her cult, her image, the virginity. She, interestingly, something that um, would normally be seen as a fault or a flaw. Um, not trying to produce an heir, and she was the first monarch in you know in hundreds of years who didn't even try. Uh, so something like that that would be a flaw. Elizabeth, being Elizabeth, turns it round to her advantage by using uh, virginity as as part of her image, and it is essential in a way because um, how can a woman rule a, a country? I, you know, a woman um, can't even get a job in in the kitchen at Hampton Court Palace. You know, all the best jobs are for men. How can a woman rule over men? So she does it by saying that she's different from other women, that God has, has called upon her for this very special um, role. And, um, and she makes herself different physically. She will come to look very different with the white face and the clothes and the wigs. And she'll look like something um, like a deity, something different from other women. And, and the virginity um, question all ties into that. You know, she will be associated with goddesses like uh, Cynthia, Minerva. Um, and then, also importantly, she will step into the vacancy left by the Virgin Mary in the Church of England. Virginity is crucial to her queenship. And Christopher, when you look at the period as a whole then, it comes to an end in 1603 with the death of of Elizabeth and you see then uh, James I uh, succeeds. Is is that a break then with the Tudor? Is that is that an end of an era? And is there a, a, a real difference that people would have noted then from 1604 on? Well, the English people in particular, when James came to the throne, they were quite happy, or at least they, at least they said they were in the last days of Elizabeth's reign, that they were sick of being governed by an old woman and they wanted to get things back to normal to have a man govern them. Um, you know, as we said before, in terms of story and narrative arc, it's a great narrative arc, isn't it? 
this dynasty that has this really impactful period and this greatly significant period, pivotal period of European history, um, goes extinct in 1603. But in terms of the people on the ground, um, the difference between 1603 and 1604, 1605, I don't think you would have seen that much difference on the ground. It's only later, I think, after a decade or two of Stuart rule in England, especially, that people begin to pine for the good old days of old Queen Bess. Um, but that could simply be nostalgia. But on the ground, like with anything, you know, the beat goes on. There's a certain continuity there that goes between the Tudor period. Things don't change overnight once the, the Stuarts succeed to the throne. And Christopher, would it have been a time, especially in the later years of the Reformation, a time of certain amount of fear and paranoia if you were practising the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing or if your loyalties were, were questions and you've got that fear of, you know, perhaps a Spanish invasion with the Armada mm. and so on, that it doesn't seem like a time to be particularly feeling safe or comfortable in your world? No, not at all. And, um, you know, on the one hand, you had, you mentioned William Cecil before and his protege, uh, Francis Walsingham, uh, the Queen's spy master, you know, keeping lists of recusants, keeping lists of Catholics or suspected Catholics in England or Jesuits in England and the same they did in Ireland too. Um, so you have the government on the one hand and then you have this real palpable fear of foreign invasion, that if you're on the wrong side, as you say, of one religion or the other, um, you could have a completely different force coming in to change things back, as it were. So the Spanish Armada is really very crucial. The fear in which the people of England lived under during that period, I mean, that can't be overlooked. It really changed um, attitudes in religion in England um, at that time. And I, I think we see this quite clearly. When the Armada fails, they have a great Thanksgiving Day celebration in London. And this is kind of a real national sigh of relief. And what's very interesting is that they try to do the same thing in Ireland too. Ireland has a Thanksgiving, Ireland's first Tudor Thanksgiving in 1589, um, you know, to praise the Queen, to praise God for delivering England and Ireland from the Spanish threat. Um, but this great outpouring of joy that we see in England doesn't go so well in Ireland. It's a half-hearted um, exercise at best. But that Elizabeth should try it all by 1589, kind of again gives the lie to this notion that there's this ongoing Tudor conquest of the place. I mean, if you're conquering a place, you're not going to have a Thanksgiving and expect all the people to come out to praise Elizabeth and to praise, you know, the um, this Protestant God. So yes, yeah, so I, this, so these were heady times indeed. And Richard, it is a time of turmoil. It's a time of wars and rebellions, but also a time of disease and pandemics. And you know, there's some elements that you know would be familiar to us, but. There's a lot going on during this dynasty. Well, absolutely. I mean, the for pandemics, we have nothing to teach them. You know, the uh, the death tolls from the waves of disease in the 1520s, the 1540s, the 1550s, and the 1590s in numbers dead rival those that we've seen in these islands in and exceed them, I think, in uh, just in flat numbers. So as a percentage of the population, we're talking at times 5-10% mortality rates. So this is, you know, death is an ever-present reality for, for everybody, which changes your perspective. The 1590s, of course, was not only a period of recurrent epidemic, but harvest failure, huge fiscal pressure because of the wars in Ireland and against Spain. And so you, you have a kind of situation, I think, at the end of the the dynasty where, it's rather as Siobhan was saying with Elizabeth's portraits, you get this sort of patina of makeup and, as it were, this, this image that you see on the late Elizabeth. The polity itself is in many ways in a very similar state. So although there's triumph and victory 
actually behind the the image we've got shortage famine death a broken fiscal system and it's not so much that the tudor thing ends in 1603 but with elizabeth's death gradually the mask comes off and over the next 20 30 years people get to see just actually how bad at the end of elizabeth's reign things have become you know the english civil war or the you know the wars of these three kingdoms in the 1640s to some extent pay back some of the borrowing on the future that had been done in Elizabeth's reign. Christopher, what would you see as the legacy of the the Tudor dynasty? Because there's been, I suppose it's a dramatic transformation of England and in terms of the rule of government and so on, but it also exerts a, a, a legacy in terms of the culture and the understanding of that period and in the way it's it's mythologized and written about afterwards. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we need to look at it differently between the Kingdom of England and the Kingdom of, of Ireland here. Um, in England, to be sure, the chief legacy that Henry VIII saw that he left his children was the break from Rome. This was his great achievement. And subsequent centuries of historians, I mean, Henry VIII's marital difficulties, having six wives and all, the Victorians, for example, had real difficulty explaining that away. But they could give Henry time because he was the one who stood up to the evils of Rome. He was the one who broke away from this kind of this bondage that England had been in and set England on its course and later for its empire. In Ireland, the Tudor legacy is 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 much more mixed. And um, the Irish nationalists would see this as another conquest of Ireland, you know, in a long line of conquests. But on the other side of the ledger, if we think of things like counties, Irish people are very um, attached to the county and the county that they're from. You know, we have Queen Elizabeth in large part to thank for that. Ireland was shired in the second half of the 16th century to a great extent. Um, so the legacy is complicated. Um, in England, the Tudors um, have generally gotten very good press until the professionalization of history over the last 50, 60 years really complicated that narrative. In Ireland, um, something of the same thing has happened, but it's a reaction against this nationalist, anti-English Tudor conquest narrative. And Natalie, it is interesting to look at, I suppose, the share price of the Tudors over the centuries as well. There were the times that the reputation was high and the times it was low in Britain because it wasn't always, they weren't always as popular uh, over the centuries as they are now. No, I mean, thinking of of Elizabeth specifically, um, she is a kind of a, a potent symbol for some of these things that Richard and Christopher have been talking about in terms of a, a symbol of Protestantism, of national identity. So exactly, if you like, whereabouts on the Protestant spectrum and what she's being used for um, uh, sort of changes across the, the 17th and early 18th century. Um, I have been doing quite a bit of reading on the 18th century. And at that point, the Tudors are, are very unpopular. The real interest there is with the Stuarts because the Stuart period was seen as creating the answer to the sort of 18th century, why they were, you know, where they were. It's that kind of soap opera element. And that was the thing that was very unpopular um, in you know, the 18th century. And Siobhan, of course, an important part of the legacy is the, the royal palaces as well, yes. uh, an area that you're an expert in. And, you know, that's a living landmarks that remind us of the power and the status of the Tudors. Yeah, and, and it's so interesting, actually, when visitors come, um, you know, they'll come and from all over the world um, and everyone, every child who comes to Hampton Court Palace they all know what Henry VIII looks like. 
But if you said, oh, okay, what does Henry V look like or Henry IV? Not a clue. He's so famous. He's such a larger-than-life character. And, I mean, do they know about him because of the six wives, because of the break from Rome, or is it the genius of Holbein and, and that image? Um, at the Tower of London, um, the person that they ask about most frequently by far is Anne Boleyn, who's uh, still seen by um, great many visitors as a tragic heroine. The story is just so dramatic and, and interesting. It's better than fiction. You know, there isn't a need to embellish or make it up. The true story of the Tudors is, is just a roller coaster um, uh, of drama. And, and yeah, I'd, and that the reason for this public fascination. It's the family itself. It's a 16th century succession, but it also has uh, all of these uh, knock-on implications for English society, for Irish society, for, for the islands and for Europe as well. Going to be continuing our discussion of the Tudors right after the break. But my thanks to Professor Christopher McGinn of Fordham University in New York, Professor Richard Rex of the University of Cambridge and Dr Natalie Mears of Durham University. Uh, Siobhan Clark of Historic Royal Palaces is going to stay with us and we are going to be talking about fashion, textiles and the symbols and the examples of power and wealth right after the break. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we continue and conclude our discussion on the Tudors. Delighted to be joined by Larry Lynn, the Head of Exhibitions at National Museum Wales. She's a fashion historian, author and the former creator of the Dress Collection at Historic Royal Palaces and the author of the award-winning book Tudor Fashion and Siobhan Clark Guide Lecturer at Historic Royal Palaces is staying with us Siobhan, uh, can I ask you about the rainbow portrait of Queen Elizabeth I and why that is considered so significant? Mm -hmm. So the rainbow portrait dates from around 1600. It hangs at Hatfield House um, and it's it's visually stunning um, and really epitomises the pulp of of Gloriana. So Elizabeth is 67, but she's portrayed as young and beautiful. So it's this mask of youth. What she's wearing is almost like a mask costume. It's very elaborate. The, the painting is also really full of um, signs and symbols, um, uh, some of which we still can't decipher uh, today. But it's, it's certainly the, the painting is testament to the Elizabethan Secret Service. Um, it was undoubtedly uh, commissioned by the Cecil family, I and mean, it's still hanging in, in their seat, Hatfield House, uh, probably by the younger Cecil, Robert Cecil. We don't actually know undoubtedly who painted it. Um, it could have been Marcus Gearhart, uh, Jean de Crit, the current day family attributed it to um, Isaac Oliver. So there's even um, a, a doubt about who, who, who painted it. It's full of symbols like um, eyes and ears, and even mouths painted into the cloak that Elizabeth is wearing. So um, a sign of her secret service who had expanded their intelligence network throughout Europe um, and the men who worked to keep Elizabeth safe, um, the Cecils, both father and son, and Francis Walsingham, who who, uh, controlled this secret service, using um, a lot of the the methods that are even deployed to this day. They're they're definitely the forerunners of MI5, using codes, um, moles, um, uh, entrapment plots. It's also showing Elizabeth as a watchful mother of the nation. It's called the rainbow portrait because she's holding um, a rainbow, which is a symbol of wisdom. There's an inscription on the painting 
Uh, no rainbow without the sun, and the, the sun is a symbol of wisdom, of light and wisdom, and it's saying that Elizabeth represents wisdom. Only her wisdom can ensure peace and prosperity. Interestingly, Elizabeth is holding the rainbow, which has been drenched of colour, and yet the colour in the portrait remains vibrant. We Again, that's one of the things we don't know why it's painted that way, but it might be to suggest that her power is so strong that she even draws the colour out of the rainbow. And Alaria, of course, the rainbow portrait ties in with the Bacton cloth, which is, I think, the, the sole surviving dress that Elizabeth wore. Yes, that's right. So uh, I was the curator of an exhibition called uh, The Lost Dress of Elizabeth I, um, which uh, was staged at Hampton Court Palace in 2019. Um, and the Baxton Altercross was shown alongside the rainbow portrait because they bear such a similarity. The bodice that, that Queen Elizabeth wears in that painting is very similar in style to uh, what we see on the Baxton Altercross. It's called the Baxton Altercross because for many centuries it was an altercross in the very small church of St. Faith's in Baxton, Herefordshire. But Bacton's most famous daughter is one, uh, one Blanche Parry, who was um, lady of the bedchamber to Elizabeth I, almost a lifelong companion to her and the receiver of many gifts from the Queen herself. So um, when I went to see uh, the altar cloth um, uh, when I was researching my book, Tudor Fashion, um, it, it struck me immediately that it, this could only have been made for the highest level of customer. The, the embroidered flowers were rendered in silks and gold and silver, and they were embroidered on a cloth of silver silk, which means that by sumptuary law, it could only have been uh, made for uh, immediate members of the royal family. So all signs seem to point in one direction. And uh, when I took it back to Hampton Court for research and analysis, it just, everything about it just seemed to point in the direction. It was, it had uh, dyes in it from India, from South America, which of course was, you know, newly discovered by the Europeans at the time. So real luxury commodities and the amount of silver in it was roughly equivalent to the cost of a, a fairly substantial house. So we were looking at something really special indeed. And when we think of the Tudor period, we do think of the clothes, the cod pieces and the cloaks and all of that velvet and silk and our imagery, our image of, of the, the monarchs and, and, and the royal society and everything that was going on is very much tied into the fashion. That's right. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there, really. I mean, when you think of all of those magnificent Holbein portraits of the Tudors, um, if you look at to see how much of the painting actually depicts textiles, um, you know, from the tapestries behind them to the carpets they stand on. Really, in, in many instances, the only thing in the painting that isn't depicting a textile is actually the face of the monarch um, itself. So for the Tudors, textiles and dress was a really important way of demonstrating their status and their wealth. Um, possibly even more than, than many other art forms or even you know, the palaces and buildings that remain. We, we don't necessarily think of that these days because we are so used to disposable fashion. But for the Tudors, it really was incredibly important. Um, and it presented um, the idea of magnificence, which at the time sort of roughly equates to you are what you wear. So the idea was that your outer appearance um, reflects your inner virtue. 
So the more magnificent you are on the outside, the more virtuous and worthy you are as a person. And so, you know, the, the fact that the the monarch and the lords and ladies were decked out in all of this expensive finery really, you know, was, was suggestive to them of the fact that they were worthy and deserved, um, you know, the wealth that they had. And in fact, that was even codified into law um, called sumptuary law, which meant that certain strata or ranks in society were only allowed to wear certain things. So the royal family they were allowed to wear purple and gold, but nobody else. You had to be a knight of the garter to wear anything in crimson and blue. You had to be a lord or a knight to wear imported wool. Everybody else was in domestic wool. And if you wanted to wear that in, you had to be a government official or a lord with an income of £100 a year. And so just by looking at somebody, you could also just plop them into society just by appearance. And it was a great way of showing their status, showing their wealth, showing the power of this dynasty. Yeah, absolutely. And really, that was kind of born from a slight paranoia, I guess, because obviously um, Henry Tudor came to the throne in 1485 as a result of um, dynastic wars, the, the Wars of the Roses. And, you know, the odds of him actually winning that battle were quite low. So he felt um, on quite shaky ground. He wanted to legitimise his, his claim. He wanted to legitimise his, his dynasty. And the way he did that was by projecting that magnificence. So he actually kept Richard III's tailor and, and asked that tailor for advice on what to wear so that he would look the part. And he spent the equivalent of something like £3 million just in the first year or two of his reign. And in fact, what's really interesting is throughout the Tudor period, um, you see spikes in their expenditure in the warrants in the royal wardrobe. The spikes tend to correlate when, with when they feel threatened with Catherine of Aragon. When Anne Boleyn comes along and Henry VIII hints that he doesn't uh, think his marriage is valid, suddenly Catherine of Aragon's expenditure on her wardrobe goes through the roof. And it's, I suppose, both to look, you know, look queenly, but also perhaps try and match the, the sophistication of her rival who's bringing all these French fashions over. So that's a really interesting way to chart how they're feeling about themselves and their dynasty, really. Very good. Well, Larry, that's a wonderful point on which to end our discussion tonight on the history of the Tudors. My thanks to Larry Lynn, the Head of Exhibitions at National Museum Wales and the author of that award-winning book, Tudor Fashion. Also to Siobhan Clark of Historic Royal Palaces. And earlier when we were joined by our wonderful panel, Professor Richard Rex of the University of Cambridge, Dr Natalie Mears of Durham University and Professor Christopher McGinn of Fordham University. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marais Sullivan to Shannon Murphy on research and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been talking history. Good night.